1: Hey everyone from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And
0: today on The Breakdown, we're going to dig in deep on two of the main issues making headlines this week. We're talking, of course, about school reopenings and voting rights.
1: That's right, Scott. With access to voting under attack in a number of Republican-led states, the House of Representatives yesterday approved HR1, a massive voting rights bill, but like many bills, it's going to face an uphill battle in the Senate.
0: Yes, an uphill battle, maybe a wall, but we're going to be joined (laughs) in just a bit by Wendy Weiser. She's vice president for democracy at the Brennan Center at NYU and has been following all the state and federal twists and turns.
1: A lot to dig in there, but first we are thrilled to have the whole KQED politics team in the flesh. Well, Virtually, really. Um, here with us, Guy Marzarati and Katie Orr. Thank you both for carving out some time to join us. Hey, guys. So, Guy, you have been following... Well, you both have, but we'll start with you, Guy. You've been following this big deal that the legislature and governor came to this week around school monies and reopenings. Can you just lay out out, out for us like what they agreed to and what it could possibly mean for all those parents who are hoping to get their kids out of their houses soon?
2: Right. Well, this actually passed the legislature moments before we're uh, talking here on Thursday. To the latter part of your question, I actually don't know if I even see this plan as something that will directly impact parents. I think this is really for school districts and teacher unions as they try to create these deals on the local level to reopen schools. It sets out a lot of money for the districts to do that. It sets aside vaccines for teachers. And I guess ultimately creates kind of a permission structure for these local districts and unions that come to a deal. But as far as the actual details that I think a lot of parents care most about, you know, when are my kids returning to school? What what will their school day look like when they get back? Those details aren't in the plan. And I think that speaks to largely what the legislature decided its mission would be, which is to put aside the money and then get the heck out of the way, not be a barrier for local districts, but not mandate that kids get back in class.
0: And Katie, uh, you know, this week began with the governor and the speaker and the Senate President Pro Tem uh, all singing from the same page about this deal. Um, what are you hearing up there? What's the tone among legislators and the governor's office? I mean, who's been really pushing the hardest? I mean, I know there was a unanimous vote among Democrats today in both houses.
3: Right. And there was some Republican support as well. And I think that that just speaks to what Guy was talking about, the the real big desire um, to look like they're doing something to get schools reopened, but not actually doing a whole lot. And that is really what I've been hearing up here, too. You know, a lot of people met this deal with just like a shrug like, okay. So, you know, a lot of schools were on their way to reopening anyway, and the COVID numbers are trending down. Vaccine supply is looking to increase pretty soon. So it was almost seen as inevitable that um, schools would start reopening with or without the government uh, weighing in.
0: Well, and I wonder if that doesn't sort of again sort of raise expectations, uh, you know, and overpromise what this is going to do. I mean, Newsom has been criticized for that for the last year.
1: Well, and it feels like if 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 all this deal is is a bunch of money to help incentivize and give schools the tool to open, why is it happening in March 2021? Like it's been a year. Well, well, I
3: think we, we kind of know why, right? The recall, <laughs> there's a recall. Well, that
0: doesn't ending. explain why he didn't do anything for the first year. I mean, it
3: just feels like, yeah. If, <laughs> right, if, if but if I funding, think we, yeah. we are seeing the recall gain steam now. And they're, they might actually have the signatures they need to qualify. And it makes Newsom nervous. And so he and Democrats are doing what they can to look like they're leading on this effort it's they have more incentive now almost i mean Guy, right and i think? would say like
2: yeah. i mean i think that's exactly right i think two things really changed the mo- momentum of the school reopening debate one is there was there is now a political counterweight to teachers unions i mean think back to the summer when COVID rates were lower than they are now. I mean, in San Francisco, I think we got into the orange or yellow tier, and there was really no conversation about bringing kids back. And I think statewide that speaks to, you know, in a lot of these districts, there isn't that political counterweight to teachers unions who were the most cautious voices in returning to the classroom. Parents groups organized, they provided that counterweight. And then I I don't think you can discount the fact that just the natural ramp up of the vaccine supply and how that's Mm -hmm. affecting in this conversation. I mean, I think a lot of districts look at that as kind of the barometer of ultimately when they're going to get kids back in the classroom. And, you know, that largely picked up in, in January and February, and I think is leading perhaps more so than this, all this money that's being directed to, to learning loss mitigation, really just ramping up the vaccine supply in combination with the political pressure, I think, is what got this to the finish line.
0: I wonder if Republicans are trying to have it both ways here, because on the one hand, uh, in the state Senate, uh, some Republicans didn't vote, but none of them voted against it. You did have four members of the Assembly, Republicans voting no. But then you've got, you know, Kevin Faulkner, who, of course, is running for governor, sending out a tweet praising Scott Wilk in the Senate, the Senate uh, minority leader for standing up for teachers and parents. I mean, what's the, it's kind of a mixed muddled message on all sides, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you're seeing the Republicans trying to capitalize on sort of the message that this doesn't really go all the way. We all want our kids back in school, but Newsom isn't doing what he really could to be the, the strongest advocate for it. I mean, I think it's a mixed message on all sides. You know, everyone wants kids to go back, but no one really wants to take the political hit that might come from like mandating that they go back.
1: And also, like, on the point of being a little maybe hypocritical here, it's like these are the same politicians on the right who are screaming to reopen bars and restaurants and and, and worship services and things that, you know, if you talk to epidemiologists, they believe – You know are are, and just opening up generally you know we see in texas they're eliminating the mask mandate like there's this push to sort of reopen fully by republicans but we know that that often leads to climbing case rates especially as we see all of these variants and and so it does seem like i mean but that's not surprising from an opposition party right
2: but also i mean there's there's some there's some hypocrisy in the whole local control debate too i mean right the farthest, the most strongest voices against Newsom on this are saying he should have taken executive action, overriding right. all local control and getting schools back with in the public health conversation. Those same conservative voices the whole time have said there is no role for the governor to play on a state level. You should let each of these local municipalities have control over their public health decisions. <laughs> so it is it is a sense. And I. Yeah, and I would say even when you ask Republican candidates for governor, they don't want to suspend collective bargaining to bring kids back, which I think is if there would be any executive action to make a difference in that way, I think that would be it, right? Well, well, the data,
0: what's interesting, the data, because, you know, Newsom keeps saying, oh, we're going to follow the science, we're going to follow the data. Well, the data show that, you know, in places where kids went back to school, uh, the infection rate uh, among the kids and among the workers at the school was actually lower than among kids who were doing at-home learning if
1: you know? they were all masked yes and yes distant right which, which I, is
0: entirely possible and we, it doesn't require two totally. billion dollars
1: but i will say to, to guy's point i think that we've gotten in this kind of really confusing like you know, because like, look at San Francisco, which is probably the worst example, but also the best example. Like, we still have only, I think, six elementary schools out of over a couple hundred that have actually been inspected and okayed by the district and health officials for kids to go back. So even if the teachers union were to say, we're, we're good, we're going back tomorrow, there's like actual problems at the local level. And, you know, I think that health officials at the local level have had varying ideas about what they think is safe. So it does feel like all of us in the public are just caught in the middle of these kind of this tug of war where nobody, it's like people want control and then they don't, and so nobody's actually taken the reins. Well, how do they define
0: do reopening? Wonder, go, ahead, go ahead, Katie.
3: Well, I was just gonna say, I do wonder if come next fall, um, let's say vaccines are widely available, if schools still for whatever reason choose not to reopen, are we gonna see Newsom then? mandate this or is he going to be even more reluctant because assuming a recall qualifies they might be getting close to an actual vote and you know i think he's hoping that these schools just kind of open on their own and the problem sort of goes away
0: well i think for newsom you know he obviously the state locked down uh for pretty early like right after the bay area did and i think you know in terms of the recall and just in terms of the way people are feeling about him generally, is like, what do you have to show for all the, cause there was a real big downside in in this case for kids who are were who stuck at home, emotional problems, uh, learning problems, for businesses that have really paid a huge price, especially, you know, small businesses, restaurants and so on. And, and so, you know, Maurice, I know you've been doing, comparing like California with Florida. Um, where they did the opposite. They like, didn't lock down so much. So I guess you know, it's just a bottom line, and this is something we may not know the answer to for years, but like what difference did it make that California yeah. did lock down?
1: Well, and did we then make, I I mean, to me, the biggest kind of missteps both at the local and state level appear to be last summer, when instead of working hard to figure out all the things we need, you know, pretend like pretend a vaccine is coming, pretend we've even made some of these union agreements, just get the schools ready at the local level. And then at the state level, we did rush to reopen things like bars and indoor restaurants, which does in hindsight seem pretty short sighted, given that schools were not the highest priority. So I think there's you know, as usual, blame to go around. Um, but I think to Katie's point, I mean, if if there are school districts that are not reopen in the fall, that is not going to be good for Newsom politically, regardless of what he has or hasn't done between now and then.
2: Hey, guy, right, you and I, I spent. I,
1: go ahead. Go ahead.
2: Well, I was just going to say, I, you know, I think some lawmakers that I've talked to about that question say that's really not even on the table. Like, I think the the default for next year goes back to a normal school year, which is in-person education. So I'd be I mean, there you might see in the budget process this summer some schools try to get a waiver to keep doing remote learning but i find it hard to believe that schools are just going to operate as you know under an assumption that they're going to start again in august and september on zoom well and i think
1: as a parent god help us god help (laughs) us
3: i mean i think one thing to look out for too is given the money that schools will get to help you know deal with learning loss how many of them are going to try and extend Um, their sessions into like this summer, for instance, you know, if they can go back, I think you might see a real big fight from teachers and staff on that as well, because they've been working all year. They just haven't been in the classroom. So I think it'll be interesting to see how that, if, if schools actually go that route.
1: The bottom line is, Butts need to be in chairs, right? We need to get back to that situation we were in a year ago before we shut down. All right. Thank you, Katie and Guy. We appreciate you coming on and, of course, following all of these twists and turns. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for having
2: us. Ciao, ciao.
1: We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, we'll be joined by voting rights expert Wendy Weiser. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio.
2: Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.
1: Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are joined by Wendy Weiser. She's Vice President of Democracy at the Brennan Center and has her finger on the pulse of all these voting debates. Wendy, welcome to Political Breakdown. Thank you for having me. We're super thrilled to get somebody who has such a deep understanding of this. And we thought we'd start kind of broad. Can you give us the lay of the land, the big picture of what is happening across the country? There's fights in the courts, in state houses. Where are we at when we talk about voting rights in America?
4: Well, we're in a very perilous time. We are seeing a concerted attack on the right to vote in America, the likes of which we have not seen in decades. Right now, we've been tracking legislation on voting for well over a decade. We, as of now, there are 253 bills pending in 43 states that would reduce access to voting, restrict the vote. um, And that is more than seven times the number that we had Last year. A lot of these, you know, we, we've been in the midst of a decade long uh, assault on voting rights. This is not brand new this year, but it is dramatically stepped up after all that happened in the 2020 election, the relentless attack by a sitting president of the United States as a, one of the principal campaign strategies on the American election system. Um, and on the right to vote. It is continuing to reverberate in state houses across the country right now. It is not behind us.
0: And, And as you said, this isn't new, but it's certainly accelerating right now. And I'm wondering, you know, as you think about that, like, what are the reasons for it? You mentioned the election. And of course, there was the big lie about this being stolen from Donald Trump. How much of it is that? How much of it is demographic and Republicans just sort of seeing the changes in a place like Georgia and wanting to do what they can? They kind of prevent it from happening I mean what are the what are the different explanations for what you're seeing?
4: well absolutely the big lie is fueling a lot of the acceleration across the country. you hear in the debates in the state houses, not only uh, reiteration of that big lie and but a lot of grievance over the election and over how it was conducted and a belief that um, president uh, former president Trump should have won it that is absolutely in play but the big lie is built on a foundation of lies that have actually been circulating for a long time in this country and for more than a decade we have seen in state houses across the country pushes to restrict access to voting justified by this same misinformation about the prevalence of widespread voter fraud which doesn't exist. And there are two main like de- two main f- factors that are determining when this happens, partisanship and race. And we've been studying this for a long time. Anytime we've seen an increase in participation by black or brown voters or even um, voters with low incomes, we've seen an effort. It's been followed by an effort to restrict access to voting, and there have been political scientists who've studied this and showed that this is actually not accidental. Um, And we've also seen that it's been these efforts have been pushed exclusively on one side of the aisle by Republicans. It is not the case that everybody in the Republican Party is restricting access to vote and is uh, opposing democracy. But there has been this virulent strain that is driving this agenda that achieved prominence um, in the um, last election, and that is really pushing aggressively and hopefully not successfully, but I I fear successfully in, in many states across the country.
0: Wendy, of course, the biggest push right now, one of them, is coming in Georgia. And we just saw this election that happened on January 5th where the Republican governor and the Secretary of State stood up and vouched for the results of the, both the presidential election and the, uh, the two the, the uh, Senate races. So what accounts for that, where they're saying, hey, there was no problem, it was a perfect election in Georgia, but we have to make all these changes? How do they square that?
4: You know, when the Republican governor and Secretary of State of Georgia stood up for the integrity of the election, it was not without political cost. There was a lot of blowback and criticism and pressure from within their own party. There is a strong debate, war within the Republican Party between those forces that actually are pushing against democratic norms and those that are trying to uphold them. And it has been hard for many to withstand that pressure. Now they are not the ones that are driving this agenda, but they have, you know, said some supportive words about efforts to roll back voting rights, um, and you know the the pressure coming from the Trump supporters has been very, very strong. Yeah. So I, I am, you know, I, I do hope that the voices of reason will prevail within the party. But so far in Georgia, there are two very big packages, one that's been barreling through their House and one that's been barreling through the Senate that would roll back voting rights in Georgia in significant ways, perhaps one of certainly two of the most restrictive packages in the country. And they are moving forward. One, the House one already passed the House. The Senate one has passed through a committee. So this has not been slowing down in Georgia. Well, and let's stick with the South, because, I mean, a lot of these fights
1: over voting access date back really to the founding of our democracy. democracy, questions of slavery of gender. But it wasn't always a partisan issue, right? I mean, we saw Dixiecrats in the South during the Jim Crow era, really try to restrict this. So uh, can you just kind of lay that out? Like why for somebody like yourself who understands this history? How familiar are these fights? And why do you think it has become so partisan when it wasn't when you know, both parties kind of used it to their advantage in the past?
4: So I think at any given point when there are fights over voting rights and somebody's trying to hold back voting rights at that point, there are two sides, those that would benefit from restricting voting rights and those that don't. And that and how that falls, whether it falls on partisan lines in any given time, it changes. But it is an anti-democratic effort. And those that benefit from keeping people from voting are more likely to support those positions. And you should be skeptical of those. But I will say support for voting rights has been, you know, until very recently, very bipartisan. Back in 2006, when the Congress was considering um, and and actually passed, reauthorized the um, landmark Voting Rights Act of 1965, it passed unanimously in the Senate. And with almost unanimously, uh, 393 to 33 in the House, was signed into law by President George W. Bush. This was a very um, broadly um, uh, bipartisan uh, supported effort. Now, since the Supreme Court actually gutted the core provision of the Voting Rights Act. A couple of years ago, it issued a decision that really um, defanged that law. So it no longer is as powerful a, a protector against discrimination in the voting system. The issue has become more polarized, and efforts to restore the voting rights have struggled to achieve almost any Republican support in the Congress. And it was rapid from unanimous support to barely any support. I I do hope that this time around, as those efforts proceed, we'll, we'll see more Republicans signing back on. But that has been a very rapid change across the country as this strategy of restricting access to voting has gained steam
0: can you just give us a little bit of specifics either in Georgia or some of these other states as to what it is these laws would do in terms of restricting how would they restrict voting
4: absolutely so this year actually this is unusual this year this isn't what we've been seeing last decade perhaps the single biggest target of these new voting restrictions is unsurprisingly mail voting and absentee voting. That was one of the biggest targets of criticism by um, the Trump campaign. And so many of these bills, um, including in Georgia, would roll back no excuse absentee voting, for example, which was actually adopted in Georgia by Republicans 16 years ago, <laughs> but now they wanna abolish that. They would impose a whole bunch of other restrictions on absentee voters, ID requirements, um, uh, rigorous signature matching, witness requirements, um, preventing people from making it accessible and mailing out applications. Those are That's sort of one big category that's very common. But we're also seeing a lot of efforts targeting voter registration making it harder for people to register to vote putting in place very strict and inflexible voter id requirements that ask people to produce ids that many americans don't have so these are some of the efforts that we're seeing across the country we have these are not new um, these other efforts they get, over the past decade we have seen a growing movement and effort to put mm-hmm. in place new voting restrictions that was a real abrupt shift <laughs> change that happened about a decade ago. Um, but um, they are very, very um, widespread now and virulent.
1: Okay. So um, we're talking to Wendy Weiser, she's vice president of democracy at the Brennan Center. Um, can you talk a little bit about there was a Supreme Court case argued this week with arizona it's a challenge to some restrictions there so they're trying to keep those the republicans uh, arguing in favor want to keep it in place and um one of the things that was said by a lawyer for the gop there was that the law puts as a, a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats, politics is a zero-sum game, and every extra vote they get through an unlawful interpretation of Section Two of the Voter to Rights Act hurts us. I mean, that sounds like saying the quiet part out loud—that w- this isn't about actually fraud or people who shouldn't be voting voting. It's that we just want to not make it easy for people, some people, to vote.
4: Yeah, that that was a shocking moment during the oral argument. Um, I, I was really surprised to, to hear that um, uh, that. But it is of a piece um, of what we've seen the degradation, especially in the last year, where there doesn't seem to be any attempt to hide the quiet part anymore. These um, efforts to roll back voting access have become much more brazen and people are much more openly admitting their partisan and, and racially targeted reasons for doing so um, and we've seen it in interviews we've seen um, you know Donald Trump said in interviews that if um, if um, these um, efforts to expand voting rights pass Republicans will never win an election again that is not true but I think that this is a, a you know an illegitimate attempt to try to game the electorate but the you know so that's certainly helps explain what's at stake in these voting battles, that this is really an attempt to shrink who can vote. But what's really important about the case that was argued before the Supreme Court isn't even the motives or isn't even the particular Arizona provisions at issue. That case could really have a negative, significant impact in rolling back the remaining nationwide protections of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And those that are bringing that case aren't just saying we want Arizona to be able to have these voting restrictions in place. They are actually asking the Supreme Court to, make it harder for people to use the Voting Rights Act to challenge discriminatory voting laws.
0: Well, and given that the court seems fairly hospitable to these arguments uh, that Republicans are making, is the only course of action through Congress at this point? We we mentioned H.R. 1, the Democrats passed in the House, uh, the For the People Act. There's another one uh, that would also, uh, you know, expand voting rights and so on. Is that the only sort of remedy that Democrats or people who just forget about party, people who care about (laughs) democracy uh, and allowing people to vote, is that the only recourse they have?
4: So we certainly cannot rely on the federal courts as the main backstop for our voting rights. And uh, then the courts have certainly been hostile to voting rights. I am somewhat hopeful that the Voting Rights Act um, can come out of this argument unscathed. But if we look at the action that the Supreme Court took last year. They really dramatically scaled back um, the enforcement of voting rights, leading to lots of courts overturning voter-friendly decisions that were there to make it easier to vote during the pandemic. So the courts are not going to be enough to ensure that every American can access um, the ballot. Some. Um, Fairly and equally, Um, and you know, it is the good news is that Congress really does have the power to do something about it. The Supreme Court has said many, many times that the Constitution allows gives Congress broad power to make a whole code of federal elections, and there is a solution that just passed last night by a vote of two hundred and twenty to two hundred and ten, the House of Representatives, that would actually create a baseline level of access to federal federal elections that every American can rely on, that can't be subject to political shenanigans, that can't be manipulated for partisan or racial or any reasons whatsoever, um, that would require all states to offer best practices like automatic and same-day voter registration, like nationwide early voting and no excuse, some absentee voting, and a whole range of other best practices that would no longer be subject to state tinkering and manipulation.
1: All right. That is Wendy Weiser of the Brennan Center for Justice. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. That is going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio.
0: Our producer is Guy Marzorati. Our engineer today is Jim Bennett. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tovin, Lindsay, Benny Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer.
1: And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. And if you find us there... Tell us any ideas you have for guests or topics you want us to chew over. Tweet them at us. We're always looking for new guests. For now, have a great week.